You're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast. We are your hosts, Abby McLeod and Lindsay Roman. We are so happy you are here with us on this podcast and especially on this episode. This one is about to rock your world in the best way possible, I promise. If you've ever been curious about how to start a family business or even wanted to somehow incorporate your family into your current business, whether that looks like adding your spouse in or you're a mom or a dad who wants to be a fully present parent while also being a successful entrepreneur, if any of those thoughts or questions have ever gone through your mind, you are in the right place. Today, we are talking all about building a family business or incorporating your family into your business and redefining what family even looks like with the amazing Jeremy Pryor. Jeremy and his wife, April, have spent the last 20 years building Team Prior together. They have five kids and have founded and led several businesses and nonprofits, including Epiphio, a video production agency, Just So, a quilt shop, FamilyTeams.com, training content for families, and 1000 Houses, a network of Cincinnati disciple-making households. As you can tell from that quick bio rundown, Jeremy has a lot of experience in not only building businesses, but building a family legacy that is rich and countercultural. If you're ready to have your worldview around family and business rocked, you're going to want to keep listening to this episode. Jeremy starts us off strong by sharing his journey with redefining family and what it means to build a legacy in a family unit that is healthy, fulfilling, and world-changing. We dive into the specifics of looking at history, the Bible, and other cultures, assessing what their approach is to multi-generational family units and doing life and business together. Jeremy then dives straight into building sustainable and successful businesses with your family involved. He breaks down the three different types of businesses every entrepreneur needs to pursue in their journey of growth and legacy. And we even talk about boundaries between family and business, how to be productive in both your business tasks while also building a rich family heritage. Seriously, today's episode is jam-packed and it is so full of truth and mind-bending you know, mindset shifts and worldview shifts. And I cannot encourage you listening to this enough and even having your spouse or your kids listen with you because it is so good. So I will go ahead and stop talking now and we will get Jeremy onto the show so he can share all of his insight. Let's go. Let me guess. Right about now, you may feel a little defeated in the productivity department. No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to cross anything off your to-do list. Your mind is moving a million miles per hour, but focusing on completing one little task feels impossible because of the endless day-to-day distractions. Hey, we are all in the same boat. There are so many distractions in entrepreneurship, let alone life itself. Being productive is an age-old struggle. Now, while it can feel hopeless at times, trying so hard to get everything done, there is hope. You can be more productive and find freedom and more time in your life and stop from spinning your wheels. I am here to tell you it is possible. We are here to help you, which is why Lindsay and I are sharing some of our favorite ways to boost your productivity and find freedom in your workday. Head to theheartuniversity.com forward slash productivity for a freebie on our favorite ways to better manage our time and actually end the day feeling good about what we accomplished. You're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast with Evie Rupp and Lindsay Roman, two photographers turned entrepreneurs and founders of the Heart University. If you're a creative entrepreneur or a motivated dreamer wanting to make the most of your life, this podcast is for you. Each week, Evie and Lindsay bring you actionable tools to uplevel your business and life. So if you're ready to step up to the plate and pursue your God-given potential, you're in the right place. You're ready to live your life and run your business to its fullest? Then buckle up, because here are your hosts, Evie and Lindsay. 
Jeremy, welcome to the Heart and Hustle podcast. We are beyond excited to have you here today. Awesome. So excited to be with you all. Oh my gosh. Yes. Me and Andrew are uh, actually in uh, your family team's, what it's Family Inc. Uh, cohort. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just excited to have you on the show. You have so much wonderful knowledge, especially on this topic to bring. So, so stoked. But just before we kind of dive into that, um, Mm -hmm. what could you just like give us a little bit background about yourself, who you are, where you came from, how you got to where you are, all the things. Yeah. So uh, I am a dad of uh, five kids. Me and my wife met in Jerusalem and, you know, we've, uh, I'm kind of like been a little bit nomadic, both in place and in like occupation. So we're really trying to explore like what what does it look like for us to really work together as a family? I think that's been a big theme. I, I, I got very captured by the way that I saw a family being lived out in the Middle East, um, which was multi-generational and, uh, and then very much like a team. And I grew up in the Seattle area where that was, I'd never seen anything like that before. And so, um, so I spent really the, the next 10, 15 years, um, with my wife, just trying to figure out, you know, what is a, what kind of family lifestyle actually makes sense for our family? Uh, we spent a lot of time studying scripture, um, really looking at different cultures <clears throat> and just saw that family was something that just felt really broken. And so, uh, really our business, um, efforts kind of came out of that. We were first trying to figure out how do we, you know, just felt like to, to be totally integrated as a family, uh, owning our own businesses, uh, allowed us to have sort of the maximum level of control over that design, over the, the way we spend time together. And so, so that's been a big part of what we did. We were living in Boston, uh, for a while. Then we moved to the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area have been here for almost 20 years. Um, you know, both sides of our family, many of them ended up moving here. My parents uh, live with us. Uh, my mother-in-law lived with us for a number of years. So we live in a kind of multi-generational household with our kids. Mm. Now our kids are, you know, getting older. They, our oldest daughter, uh, Kelsey just got married and is, uh, now expecting her there first. So we're about to become grandparents. So yeah, that's kind of, uh, a little bit of our, our background. Oh, I love that. I think, you know, not only is there such beauty and power in, you know, your encounter with seeing multi-generational families, but then the way that you kind of took that home and chose to pursue that in your own family. And now, you know, a big part of your mission is also like discipling and and guiding and mm-hmm. spilling your knowledge into other families as well. So we are so grateful for your time here today, sharing a bunch of that, you know, knowledge and experience and lessons that you've learned with us. And I know you mentioned, you know, bringing your family into your businesses and or, or building businesses with your family and kind of like growing um, all of that with your wife, with your kids. How has navigating the balance of you know, business and family life at the beginning for you, I guess, as you were kind of getting your feet started? Like, was that difficult? Was it easy? Was it a learning curve? I'd just love to hear your experience with that. Yeah, I think for me, it kind of started with trying to define what 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 was the design, you know, that was in kind of God's heart when he created family? Was it for us all to go our own separate ways and spend most of our work hours um, apart from our family? Um, or is that sort of a vestige of sort of the way kind of the current economy works and that, you know, we can choose to, to change that. And so I know for me, uh, as the deeper I got into this, I, I just started to really believe that, you know, the way that 
our current kind of since the kind of industrial revolution, we, we just got really used to this idea that our work is always an individual pursuit. And mm-hmm. so we are used to sort of atomizing the family into its individual components and then sending them off to work, sending them off to school. So everything is, is very hyper individualized. And so I think I began to believe that, you know, as much as I've been, I grew up in that, I'm extremely influenced by that. I began to really believe that that was abnormal um, mm-hmm. and that, uh, that actually, you know, and, and that when we were capitulating that, which I have had to many, many times, you know, in my work life, um, that, that, that was asking something that was really hard on my family, um, to, to not have their, their dad with them, uh, for so much of the day. Um, and then similar with my wife. So that was, so that, that started kind of a exploration of, okay, we we do have to live in this world. You know, we do live, we do need to make money. We do want to be productive in our work. Uh, we do care a lot about the quality of our work. So is there a way to do that, that would allow us to be with our family more often and sort of make that an expression in and through the family? So we just started mm-hmm. to try things. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so over time we started to discover, yeah, there are, there are creative ways to try to bridge that gap, even in the, the sort of way things are, are designed today. Yeah. I love that. Okay, can we back up maybe like a little bit for anybody that maybe isn't super knowledgeable about how like Middle Eastern families are kind of set mm-hmm. up and it, like how that was really the trigger that inspired you to start living differently with your mm-hmm. family. Could you almost kind of break down just a little bit of the difference between like the traditional like American family and then what you saw when you went to Israel? Yeah. Yeah. So I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that, <clears throat> you know, we, we are deeply formed by stories. And if you were, and this is, you know, for me, it started with when I was 23 years old, a single guy, I was in Jerusalem and I just watched one day, um, a group of fathers like pushing strollers together, <laughs> uh, with a yeah. bunch of kids in tow. And I, I, you know, I've seen mother like kind of mommy brigades. I'd never seen a daddy brigade. <laughs> so it's <was> just, <laughs> this was such a strange sight to me, uh, coming from the West coast. I just started asking a lot of questions like what, what is the way you guys see family or, you know, fatherhood, motherhood. And as I got deeper into asking that question, both within the Jewish and Muslim context, they really were so influenced by the story of Abraham. And they saw Abraham as sort of the, uh, like a, like almost like an archetypal father. Mm-hmm. And so when he thought, so I started studying Abraham from that lens and I was really surprised <clears throat> at how very unwestern that idea is. And being a Christian, you know, Abraham is just as much a part of our faith as it mm-hmm. is the, you know, their faiths. Yeah. You know, we all are following what you know people refer to as Abrahamic religions. It's just that it, within Christianity, we're the only faith of the three that does not think about Abraham in that way. Um, mm-hmm. That we, 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 we literally, like I, I had studied Abraham um, in a academic environment exclusively the semester before. It was really bizarre. I, I actually was with probably the top Abrahamic scholar in the evangelical world wow. at a seminary. Um, and we never once, you know, talked about Abraham as a father. So this was, I was shocked when I was, so I, I, so I studied him as like a man of faith. I really looked at and studied the Old Testament and then a lot of the passages in the New Testament, Abraham from that perspective. Um, but, but being totally immersed in, in sort of Abrahamic scholarship from a Christian perspective and then being in a culture where everyone thought of Abraham differently and, and from a lens that we just totally ignored, I, I was kind of set up for just really to have a, a massive paradigm shift. 
Uh, and so, uh, so that's, that's kind of where it started for me. I began to think about, okay, how did Abraham see family? And Abraham saw family as the sort of central uh, identity through which he lived his life. And so when he was going to work, Abraham didn't primarily think of himself as, well, there's, you know, there's Abraham as a dad, Abraham as a worker, Abraham, you know, as a worshiper of God. Um, really, he was Father Abraham. Even his name, you know, he said it in Hebrew, Abraham, Abram was his first name, which means exalted father um, and uh, in Hebrew. And then Abraham <clears throat> means father of many nations. And so he saw himself primarily as a father. And so every one of his activities was nested inside of that story. And so when he was going to work, he wasn't primarily saying, okay, I'm going to build up a personal independent identity from my family as a productive worker. He, he went to work every single day as a father. And, mm-hmm. and, that, that, and so when, when I began to really understand what that means for me, and I really, I really shifted, like I, I do think of myself primarily as the leader of a multi-generational family and that I am being given a, uh, the stewardship of a family line that has existed for thousands of years. And I only get to steward this line for, you know, a few years. And so I really need to be thoughtful about what those family stories are. So there's a lot to, there's a very different way of seeing your life, your family, and these Middle Eastern families all intuitively thought about family in those terms, uh, in terms that I had never even uh, I had never even thought of before. So I try to break this down for, you know, Western people to try to understand the difference. Yeah. yeah. We've got a lot of different little tools, but, but the, the, the most simple way to think about it from a definitional perspective is that a Western person thinks that family is a springboard for individual success. And the analogy we use to, to show kind of the best analogy for that is the nest. So it, it resets every generation. You know, you sort of have your chickies for a period. They go off and they start their own families. And those kind of families have about an 80-year memory. You know, most people that, that, that have that perspective on family can't name their great-grandparents because, mm-hmm. you know, where they came from, where their family was 100, 150 years ago is, is really irrelevant to the, <clears throat> to the individuals. It really resets every generation. So being a nest, bring a springboard for individual success, that's the way Western people intuitively think. That's what they think family is. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Middle East and in almost all of history and certainly every single um, part of the Bible, the the way that that they saw family was a multi-generational team on mission. And so team as opposed to nest was the primary analogy or you know that we would relate to that really describes the way they see family. And that's totally different. you know, mm-hmm. creating a nest, um, that's really a nurturing environment to to help as sort of a recharging station between as the family or as the everyone sort of launches off, you know, every day, every week into their individual life versus being a team and working together across not not just in, in the day to day, week to week, but also across generations. That's mm-hmm. totally different. Yeah. Well, I feel like even as you're talking, I'm like the amount of times in culture, especially American culture, you've, you've heard just like, Oh, like, I can't wait till my kids are out of the house. Like Mm -hmm. when they're 18, we can kick them out or like, not even like that that's always given in a negative way, but it's always what you just said of like leaving the nest and like, Hey, go off on your own. And, and not that having them grow up and be obviously independent adults is necessarily a bad thing, but it, it is Mm -hmm. very different. Just the culture than what you just described with uh, Abraham and just like how a lot of Middle Eastern families view 
it's just so different. And I think it, it is so beautiful to kind of change your mindset a little bit to, or a lot of it, I guess, um, yeah. to just completely radicalize like how you're viewing your family. And, and it's like, okay, am I building something together to last generations? Um, I feel like we've shared this on the podcast before, but it almost reminds me of like when builders uh, in Europe built cathedrals, like those, mm-hmm. those cathedrals took hundreds and hundreds of years to build. So like, I always think of the builders that started that cathedral, like started building the rocks or the stone or whatever rock, whatever they use, <laughs> um, to start building it. Like they never saw the outcome of the work that they poured in, but right. they still had like a vision of what it could be. And they put in the work and the effort, like alongside the other people to, create something beautiful. Um, it kind of makes me think of that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a much longer term vision. And, mm-hmm. and so we, we kind of think about family in the West in almost like 20 year in- increments. And so, you know, that we, we, we have kids, we raise them, we launch them out. And so the nest sort of self-destructs, everything sort of starts over. Um, <clears throat> that, that, so that's a, that's a very weird and very recent idea of family. And in most times in history, you know, if you thought a family that way, you literally would not survive. Like mm-hmm. you, your, your parents would, would definitely, you know, as they're, they're, they're age, as they age would, you know, suffer greatly. If everyone was sort of going their own way, your children could not really make it. Um, if you uh, assumed that they could be launched out in that, in that fashion, um, you know, there was just constant threats of pestilence and, you know, of wars and just there was the, the world was too difficult a place to mm-hmm. think that you could survive as an individual. But when you get to a very, very wealthy place and sociologists call this <clears throat> the assumption of stability. So when you raise your kids and launch them out, you would only do that if you assume that they're going to be launched out into a relatively safe world. Right. And uh, because otherwise, you know, it's like and we saw this when COVID started. Nobody really knew how bad it was going to get. And so we're like for the first month or two, people collapse inside, you know, what we call their bubbles, right? Like, where, what are those relationships that I can rely on? Um, and a lot of people found themselves alone, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, my gosh, I don't, you know, are very, very thin uh, networks of people that they could rely on. Um, but, you know, that it turned out to be not as bad as we were afraid that it could be. And so people are back to that assumption of stability. But yeah, that that idea is very recent and only really exists in cultures that that have had you know, strung together a few generations of relative stability, um, where they think, oh, it's safe for us all just to go our own way. Um, and, and whereas with cultures with much longer memories, you know, you see this with some immigrant families, it particularly like in the West, you know, Jewish families that have a much longer memory of, of, of times that, yeah, every hundred to 200 years, there's a terrible persecution. Like we, it's not safe for us to assume that life's always going to be stable. Mm-hmm. They tend to persist as multi-generational families, even in very stable cultures. And when they enter into those cultures <clears throat> and work as a team, they also tend to be very, very successful financially and mm-hmm. in other areas. Because, you know, when you're constantly hitting the reset button every generation, it's very hard to, you know, really gain traction. But yeah. if you if you work together across generations, it's actually quite easy to... Uh, to begin to accumulate a lot of, you know, a lot of resources. And so these are very different ways of, of seeing how, you know, how to think about the future. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that this whole time you've been talking, I've had so many, you know, thoughts and questions running through my mind and a couple of them related to, you know, I am so curious and I'm sure Jeremy, in your years of studying this, you probably know some of this and some of these answers, but 
you know, me hearing your perspective on this for the first time, I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, what is the difference between, you know, America, like, like with, with data and with numbers, like what is the satisfaction level of the American family versus the satisfaction level of like a Middle Eastern family who has this bigger picture of family, you know, not viewing it as a springboard to individual success, but that you're working together as a team. Like, is there more joy and contentment in those who are viewing it as a bigger than themselves versus like more discontentment and dissatisfaction in the American family viewing kids as more of a burden or, you know, Mm -hmm this is what I need to do in order to fit in in society versus these children are my legacy. You know, I'm sure. And then you brought up the financial aspect of it as well of, you know, I'm sure there are so many differences because what you're describing is the, the biblical, you know, God intended design for family. And when God designs something, there is always blessings and, you know, fruitfulness in pursuing and obeying and walking in his design. Um, And so that fascinates me, like from a more like data perspective of, and we don't have to go into it today, but I'm just throwing that out there of like, I'm Mm. like, oh, there's got to be, you know, stats of the differences and you're seeing the fruit in the more, you know, big picture family value method. Yes. Yeah. That's really what got me first. I mean, like I said, I, growing up in the Seattle area, just anecdotally, I was a youth pastor and I just saw, it, it felt like family was a bad experiment. There were so few intact families. We were mostly working with kids, you know, that were in the public school system. So they weren't necessarily kids that were, you know, all in our church, but man, it was, it was crazy. I mean, growing up, I, even on my street, I, just about like I could name every, you know, all my friends came from divorce. It was just, there was so much divorce, so much brokenness. And it really, in, in a lot of ways, the, uh, you know, this being on the West Coast, a lot of times what you experience is, you know, people really leaning into where the culture is going. And so they're, they tend to be 5, 10, 15 years, a little bit more ahead of so like where I live now in the Midwest uh, from some of those in some of those areas. So you can kind of see where ideas end up, you know, and and so I just I did not want to have children. You know, I just it looked like it was a bad idea. You know, Mm -hmm. like, how could I, how could I even expect to stay married when I just, you know, and so, um, and so, you know, Seattle became the first, uh, city in the nation where there were more dogs than than kids. And, um, I fully related to that. My friends were, many of them were just opting out and saying, let's just cohabitate. Let's not have kids. Let's, you know, let's, you know, experience whatever kind of maternal paternal instincts on animals and, and just enjoy, you know, that and just live a lifestyle that is sort of kid free. Um, and wow. that, that made a lot of sense just given what I had seen the destruction, you know, and it's just uh, in ter- terms of like some of the stats that really have affected me. So today, um, 60% of, of children, uh, that grow up in kind of, uh, America will live some part of their life outside of the home of their biological father. Um, so once you start seeing that the majority of people are really being affected by some kind of family destroying, um, you know, uh, aspect that that's something has gone wrong. Like Mm -hmm. the blueprint, either God's the worst designer, like there's something wrong with, with how God designed things, or we aren't following the blueprint. Um, you know, another statistic in terms of like the middle East versus, um, our culture is that so that, you know, the typical evangelical household today, um, will see 20% of their children, uh, following their faith. 
Um, wow. and it's, it's gotten down worse and worse and worse. And it's, it's at its worst level that we've ever seen. Whereas like wow. in the, uh, the Orthodox Jewish community, it's closer to 95%. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that's a massive, you know, difference. And this is where, you know, I'm just like, what, what are we doing? Like, yeah. the, like we just decided collectively to follow the culture. Like if you, if you even, you know, look at family ministries, um, that are focused on, you know, the sort of the Christian community, uh, or the way that churches talk about family, we, we really assume the same blueprint, the same paradigm as the culture, uh, this idea of a nest there, there's, I'd never even heard of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- I think that the decision to sort of follow the culture and to redefine family as a nest and as a springboard for individual success, um, and not to understand that the Bible radically challenges that idea and has a totally different blueprint that, that you know, used to be common and is, is still the most common, not just in, in sort of religious world, but across the world. If you look at, yeah. you know, Asian cultures, or, I mean, the, the, this is sort of the ancient, I, sometimes I just like to call it the classical family. It's, it's, the, it's the way that family just would naturally happen in most mm-hmm. places and most times. Mm-hmm. Um, to abandon that, to, to kind of enter this experiment that we know is broken, and then to double down on this experiment and continue to act as if this is the way that family was always designed. Um, and just to say, you know, the problem is that people don't focus on their family enough. I mean, the, the messages that that people um, sort of give to fathers in particular who are abandoning their families at rates we've never seen in, in Western history um, in the Christian world is really do your duty and be a more loving dad. But that's, you know, that's that's not helping because, um, you know, being in the Middle East, one of the things I noticed was that these fathers actually weren't more loving. Like that wasn't the problem. Um, they saw family as fundamentally a different thing. And, and so they, they were more likely to be committed to family than even their wives were, you know, that's bizarre for us to think about. But when, when you, with a typical Middle Eastern family, if you were to talk, sit down with the mother and the father and just ask them questions about, about family and about, you know, their role or whatever, um, you would, you would see in many cases, the man have, uh, in terms of just identifying with his children, these are my children. It's my, I, I want to provide for them the amount of time he spends thinking about his family, thinking about his children, investing in his children. You know, I used to talk to this Arab gentleman, you know, on a regular basis and he would sit down and just, you know, it was very predictable. He would go through each of his kids. This one's doing this and this one, you know, like that's what they talk about when they sit around and, you know, have tea with each other, these men. Um, yeah, that's again, bizarre to us because if you get, you know, I remember one day I was, you know, I was CEO of a company for a while and, um, you know, we had a, you know, really, um, major legal problem that had, had occurred. And so, um, this consultant came in and, and we were just sort of chatting and the way that he thought to, you know, sort of, relate to me was just to talk immediately about how annoying children are and that, yeah, that's my <laughs> wife's thing. I told her that, wow. you know, if, uh, if she want to have kids and, and at, at that level, kind of at that high level of, of work, when you're, when you're, you know, really experiencing a lot of success in the business world, that is very common. Like yeah. the one thing you can expect all of us men are going to relate to is that we find this whole family thing, a distraction, wow. you know, and annoying and of course, that's not my perspective, but I totally understand why it was his perspective. So yeah. again, yeah, th- these are these are very different ideas, and ideas matter. I think a lot mm-hmm. of times people don't understand mm-hmm. how deeply what you think something is 
uh, shapes your values. Yeah, we don't totally. understand how that works. And so we become very susceptible to sort of when culture starts to redefine values, we just kind of follow right along. Yeah. Mm. Oh man, I'm loving this conversation so much. And I know we're eventually going to get more into like the business family avenue, but before we get there, um, for anybody that's listening to this and they're like mind blown and you just have opened up their brainwaves and you're like, what? They're just sitting there like, wait, everything that he's saying is making sense. However, I like, I'm imagining someone listening to this that maybe has come from a broken family. Maybe they, their parents are divorced or they don't have a father in their life or whatever broken situation that they've been born into. I, I could imagine them hearing this and being like, okay, I, I like that idea, but like, where do I even start? Especially for a lot of, I feel like our female listeners, um, mm-hmm. like, do you have any advice on just like how to even begin to start implementing multi-generational thinking into their fam- their current family or their future family if they're not married yet or anything like that um, that could be like tangible in, in the sense of like, okay, I, I wasn't clearly born into a family legacy that's already kind of going. How do I be like the beginning of that? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it, yeah, it starts with, you know, trying, tr- trying to understand the difference between your, your individual identities and your family identities. So everyone listening to this has a series of family identities. Even if you're single, you know, you're a woman, you're a daughter and you might be a sister, right? If you're, if you are a, if you're, you're married, you're also a wife and a mother. Okay. So, um, those categories, those buckets are extremely important. Like they, and one of the things our culture has decided to do and it's important just to say this, is that we've decided that your whatever whatever identities do not rely upon other people um, are more important. So if you have a hobby or you are, you know, crushing it at work, whatever you are in that, you know, you're a photographer, you know, you're an artist, you're a creative, you're like all those very individual identities, which are great. Like I, 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 I share those and I think those are important to steward. But we've, it's important to say that we've decided that's more important than mother, wife, sister, daughter. Wow. Um, and we're very uncomfortable with even those words, I think, increasingly. I mean, they're hyper-genderized. You know, they're very specific to a particular way of seeing the world, mm-hmm. you know. And so, um, but it's important just to understand how that sort of uh, uncomfort, like we, we've chosen to shift from those family identities to these individual identities and to say those are more valuable. And so when you're, you're outside of the home, there's even like, you know, when you're interviewing for work or you're in the workplace there, you know, HR departments are really, they don't want you to talk about those identities. You know, those, they don't want, they don't want, because that, that creates a whole bunch of assumptions, which means that what's left over is that we only can value and talk about our individual identities. Right. Um, and, man, that is really hard on us. So what I'm saying to that person is go back to those buckets, you know, um, and, and you have to think about this. I think, I think men and women both have to think about like the full gamut, you know, father, mother, wife, husband, son, daughter, sister, brother. Those are the, those eight are, you know, those are the most basic, I sort of fundamental, um, sort of categories and those identities. And just ask yourself, how important are those identities to you? How, mm-hmm. how much do you understand them? Do you enjoy them? Do you, when you think about them, do you get excited? Um, do you want to go deeper into them? Do you feel, even in a, like, especially when I'm talking to creatives, one of the questions I always want to understand is, how do you feel about them aesthetically? 
Like, do you find yourself like, do you find them beautiful? Oh man, being a wife, being a mother, being a daughter, being a sister, that is beautiful. Like I just, I'm so filled with just wonder and awe at the beauty of the design of those roles. <laughs> Jeremy, like that's, you're, making, that's a, you're making literally like, Lindsay and I are both crying right now. I'm literally, we're on a Zoom call just because with two hosts, it's easier to like organize who's who's talking. And literally I was <laughs> muted and I am like, I'm like literally crying. Like yeah, just what you said, like literally brought me to tears because I was like, oh wow. And maybe it's also because I grew up with what you were talking about of just having a, a generation that had like more dogs than kids. I don't know. I grew up not wanting kids like at all. And God yeah. just like completely revolutionized uh, that in my heart when I got married, well, even after that. Um, so I'm just resonating so hard with what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's because because what you guys are discovering, and this is true, is there's actually a place in our hearts for each of those roles. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that. I mean, this this we, we know this is true in scripture. We also know that, I mean, psychology has said this for years. I mean, Carl Jung, Basically, he found people that that had zero contact with any family identities, having dreams about mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. I mean, these are so deep inside of us, and and so and so we've decided to wall ourselves off from these things because it gives us, you know, it allows us to have this this hyper individualized experience of life, and we we're, we're not tapping into the most meaningful parts of our heart. And it's mm-hmm. understandable at one level because, again, like, you know, like, you know, we've experienced so much brokenness. You know, it's like yeah. the idea that the family is is dysfunctional. People think that's obvious. It's not obvious. Like families are highly functional. Yeah. Like families are incredibly beautiful. We've forgotten how to be a family. We don't even know what a family is. Yeah. When we start talking about, you know, when I begin to like have this conversation with some people, it, it's so counterintuitive to imagine that 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 we we aren't experts, at least at the definition of a family, given the fact that we've all spent, you know, years and years and years growing up in families. We think, of course, we know what a family is like. And so nobody ever thinks to look there for the problem. Uh, And that's why, you know, for a lot of people, this is extremely difficult, like even to do it like mentally Mm -hmm. to think, oh my gosh, I, I maybe, I don't, maybe I don't even know what a family is. And that's why when we, we, I, I don't think a family is a springboard for individual success. I think that that idea um, is that's some other kind of uh, entity that we have created. And um, now we are in families, you know, I mean, we are born into families and, uh, and those parts in our heart uh, for all of those identities I described, <clears throat> you know, we, we've all, we all have some experience with them, but because we don't actually understand that a family is designed to be a multi-generational team, um, they, everything breaks down. And so what is a daughter in a multi-generational team? Like a daughter, she has a very particular role in the context of a multi-generational family team, right? She's, and I, I think the, the best archetypal example of, of the daughter role is Ruth in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's like, it's such a beautiful, but there is a, there is and every one of these roles has a particular way they sacrifice their individual identity for the family. And this mm. is highly, highly disturbing. Like if you literally were, will go to a therapist and say, hey, I feel like I feel like what I really need to do as a mother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter is sacrifice my individual identity for my family. They will stop you <laughs> yeah. there and say that is deeply unhealthy. Yeah. You need to stop. You need to, you know, get a hold of yourself and like and really understand who you are and, yeah. and put yourself first. Well, that's the definition of what destroys a family. 
Yeah. Like, like you cannot do that when everyone in the family is equally sacrificing and playing that role and loves that role as like aesthetically as, as a beautiful thing. What emerges is a beautiful family, which is so, so powerful. The world needs to see this. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying. When I go to other countries that haven't kind of gone through this kind of uh, transition that we've gone through in the West, you still see the beauty of the families. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what captured my heart because like I, I was, you know, right where you were, Lindsay, I was like, I didn't, I didn't really want to have a family. Like, so, um, and so if I, if I didn't find family beautiful, I wasn't going to do it, you know? And so once I began to see it as beautiful, then I got excited. Mm, This is so good. I'm literally, I I feel like we could talk to you for like two hours and like dive into so many different aspects of this topic and this conversation. And I feel like you've just given the biggest uh, worldview shakeup in the last 30 minutes. And I love that we are now kind of redefining what the family is, what the family unit should look like, what our perspective and our, you know, approach to family should be. And I kind of want, unless Lindsay has anything else that she wants to follow up, I kind of want to pivot now into, okay, we've reset the foundation of what is the family Now let's shift into, okay, how do we build, you know, businesses, but more than that, you know, businesses incorporating into building our family legacy, like Mm -hmm. as a a tool of that, you know, it's not about building, you know, it's, it's a part of it. So what Jeremy, for you and your experience, do you have some like tangible, um, practical examples of how you have incorporated your family into your family businesses over the years so that we can kind of get like a grasp of what does that even look like? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so we kind of took a step back and just said, okay. And a lot of this has been trial and error coaching many families and starting to see patterns. And I can kind of give you guys kind of, you know, to the end and we can go back into, you know, how, how we kind of came to some of these conclusions, but what, what we've noticed is, okay. If we start from the perspective that families are designed to work together as a team, um, and I believe, by the way, everything that I'm saying ought to be voluntary. I mean, I tell, tell this to my kids. I think this is important. I think this is one of the things that the West did right. And that is that you want to make families beautiful, but you never want to force anyone in the family to mm-hmm. do something. Like you want them to voluntarily sacrifice or voluntarily join whatever, you know, whatever the efforts are. Obviously, when they're really young, you have young children, you get to design their life and figure out for them what's best for them. But the but because I know that as I, as they're getting older, you know, I'm trying to win their hearts and get them excited and, and, and preserve a really healthy relationship with them so that they might choose to work more with the family. Um, I, I always want that to be voluntary, volunta- voluntary. And I, I also believe there are seasons where um, our kids need to be in other environments that are outside our family. And, and we've embraced that with our adult children. And so there's a lot of details there. But, um, but basically the way that I think about this from the perspective of business, um, is that, so we've, we've done this, we've coached many families to do this, is that if you want to live like a a very highly integrated life with your family, most, most of the time what we see is people, they, they end up starting three different kinds of businesses. Lindsay's Lindsay's heard this, but basically I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's a, there's a, so it usually starts with what I, I call a freedom business. And this is a business that. And this is oftentimes how you pivot out of maybe an employment situation. Now, the whole this whole paradigm is saying, okay, I want to work primarily as a family team, and and we give this you know sort of roadmap to people because they are oftentimes 
um, kind of further down the road in this paradigm that I've described. And they're like, man, it sucks to work 40, 50 hours a week apart from your family. Um, when I was, you know, uh, in the sort of career counselor's office, um, nobody ever asked me like, uh, whether or not I wanted to choose a career that would maximally integrate my family and my children <laughs> and my relationship <laughs> with my spouse. Um, they always ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. So mm-hmm. like, what do you feel like? And so, but I'm not just a, you, I'm also a father, you know, mm-hmm. I'm also a mother or we're also, you know, uh, a sister or brother, you know? So again, as you start to dial up your interest in love and appreciation for these roles and want to live more through those roles. And I wanted my work to hundred percent be integrated into my experience as a father. Um, I am, I am always a father uh, when I go to work and you know, my wife, April's always a mother. Like we don't ever take those roles off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, we, um, you know, this started make, making sense to us. And so, uh, this transition for us has, has meant we begin by starting a freedom business, which is oftentimes a service-based business. Um, that's usually, you know, most people think about startups. Unfortunately, we have sort of this shark tank, um, you know, uh, tech, uh, you know, unicorn startup perspective on what it means <laughs> to start a business, which is incredibly rare, uh, in the startup world. Most businesses are, are service-based businesses that are regional, um, and you can, you know, make a lot of money um, in those kinds of businesses. And so, it's we tell people like, yeah, if you're if you're single or you have a huge amount of runway or you're very comfortable raising money or you're hyper entrepreneurial, then you can jump into those kind of startups. Um, but for the other ninety five percent of us, um, this is a much more reliable pathway. So you start with a service, you figure out something that you can provide that's, you know, tied to your time, um, but has a high, you know, high return in terms of hourly. And so a lot of times people, um, will, you know, there's, there's getting into trades in this area. There's like specific, there's getting, you know, into creative services, there's, you know, marketing services, there's so many services. Um, and there's the, the, the great thing is that because technology is, is constantly disrupting, um, the economy, there's always new services, you know, that are popping out of nowhere that are like very underserved, usually for years and years. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's, so we start a business in that realm. There's hundreds of examples of those. And so you pick one and then you begin to offer that. And, you know, usually within three to six months, you can really start to uh, make a good income. And one of the great things about a service business is you can pull a hundred percent of basically the cash that you make out of the business, um, you know, after you pay a few expenses and live off of that. And so that gives you freedom and from a, from an employment situation and allows you to start to design your lifestyle in a, in a unique way for, you know, with your family. And so in terms of, and that's when I begin to introduce people, the idea of like just bringing your kids to work or, you know, um, you know, like finding, you know, finding kind of designing your lifestyle in such a way that your, you know, your children can, can be, can have like insight into, uh, those things. Um, because when you own a business, if you're, you know, if you're taking a sales trip, you're on the road, you know, in between, you know, jobs, you're, you know, answering email, there's, you know, there's lots of ways in which you can, you know, you can be with your kids and be, they can get to be a son and daughter. You can get to be a mother or father while you're, while you work. And mm-hmm. and to me, again, that's, I find that beautiful. I find that attractive. Um, you always have to be really careful with, you know, is this, is this actually destroying my ability to be productive? Um, and so we were really intentional uh, to to really think through the details of like how could my our children be with us, you know, a lot of the time, 
and and still we could we could do excellent work. And there there are lots of ways to, to do. We can get into more details than that, but but that's certainly critical. I I am not interested in you know basically you know bringing all my kids to work and just watching their chaos destroy. <laughs> you know, uh, on my ability to be productive. You know, uh, or you know my ability to do a good job service serving a client. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that's where a lot of most families start. And then the second thing that I tell them is after after a year or two of that. Um, you start to really learn a lot about business and you start to, one of the things that happens naturally in a freedom business, you know, one of these service-based businesses is that you start to find efficiencies and, um, and then you, what you begin to, to try to figure out is, is there a way to provide that at scale, um, that is not tied to my time. And so that's usually the second business that people launch, you know? And so I think Lindsay, like in your case, you, you went from photography to, you know, I think some of these, uh, coaching and, um, in courses. And, and so that, that kind of thing is very consistent with the way that, um, you know, we coach families to think about, okay, you've got your freedom business now, now create a scale business, something that will, that isn't tied to your time. And then ultimately all of that, that money is in service of a third business, which is a legacy business. And this is when you begin to, um, buy capital intensive assets, things like real estate, you want to buy Airbnbs or, you know, long-term rentals or, you know, multifamily units or, um, there's, there's others, there's, there's also non-real estate based, but I, I tend to really like the real estate because eventually over time, what starts to happen is that, you know, as the, the income from, from your freedom and scale businesses start to, um, pay off, you know, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of other investments, this creates maximal integration and a lots of on kind of onboarding opportunities for your adult children. So mm-hmm. like for my kids, as they're getting older, because we do have, you know, these three kinds of businesses, there are always, there's always a, a, an open door if they want to integrate with us and, you know, um, and in, including, you know, there are in-laws and, um, and others. And so this allows us to just constantly take a step back and, and we have, you know, regular, uh, family summits and we have, you know, conversations where, you know, how can we, how can we help each other? And, and they are, they're also launching their own businesses. And so, but because again, they own them, we can, that maximizes the, opportunity for integration. So I can jump in and help them, you know, in, in my area of expertise, but in our legacy business, an example is my son, Jackson, he's really into construction. So he's done a lot of the rehabbing my daughter, Kelsey, she's, you know, she's really organized and great at communication. So she does our property management. My wife, April is really good at the finances. And so she keeps the books. Um, I really enjoy the strategy. So I do the finding the properties, going to the auctions. We oftentimes buy properties on auction um, so the legacy business is hyper integrated. Mm-hmm. And whereas I have, um, you know, partners oftentimes in the other kinds of business, particularly scale businesses oftentimes require you to give up equity. If you really want to, you know, bring on uh, specialized partners, you know, um, most of my kids will find a, 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 the, the vision, the values of the legacy business is always aligned hundred percent with our family. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so, whereas I might have a child who's really into, you know, something we're doing in one of our scale businesses, um, <clears throat> because those require really specialized skills. Uh, I, I definitely don't see maximum integration there. I'll integrate, I'll see some with like usually one of my kids, you know, mm-hmm. so Kelsey, for example, she is, she's in a family team. She's a, my podcast producer, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's a scale business for us. And so, um, so she's really involved with me and we have weekly meetings and I, so I get to work with her. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that, that I think what's important and what people really underestimate, they look at all this and they're like, okay, well, what's the real, you know, what are you really going after? What's the real, um, advantage of this? 
And man, if you if you uh, figure out a way to spend you know five more hours a week with your family than you do now, you know, doing not just you know uh, recreational stuff at home like watching a movie or you know playing a game, but actually doing productive work. It's it's really hard to describe how amazing that is. Like mm-hmm. how much deeper that relationship tends to go. That's a lot of time. I mean, five hours a week. Imagine you do that. Figure this out. You know, when your kids are six or seven years old, and you think about the rest of that their growing up years, and then you start to look at the future, and you know, have this opportunity for your children to come and and have the option to integrate with one of the family businesses as they're getting into adulthood, or for you to integrate into one of their efforts. Um, it's it's a totally different kind of family experience. Mm-hmm. It's one in which you know again t- time is really important, and so you know we, we have all have a very limited amount of time. So this is th- the one way to think about this is just it's a way to double, triple, quadruple the amount of time you spend with your family. Listen up, entrepreneurs. Do you ever struggle with getting all of the nutrients that you need in a day? Because let's be real, you are busy as heck. Same. Introducing Athletic Greens. We've started taking AG1 because we wanted to see what all of the hype was about. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. Literally all the things. Yes, AG1 contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And a friend of ours describes it as white gummy bear flavor, and that is very accurate. (laughs) Yes, it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself, and your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add in the winter months when you don't get as much sunlight. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash heart. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash heart to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Photographers, listen up. You do not want to miss this. We are so excited to tell you about an amazing wedding photography summit hosted by the one and only Jai Long. We had Jai on the podcast on episode 218, so definitely go back and give that a listen to hear how incredible he is. But if you already know that, Jai is hosting a two-day online summit for all wedding photographers, videographers, vendors, and creatives. The summit will be taking place November 21st and 22nd, 2022, and there will be 10 speakers over two days. And uh, you might already know two of them. Content it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Topics that will be covered will be Pinterest, SEO, client experience, pricing, design, and literally so much more. Yes, for general admission, tickets are only $7. Yes, seven freaking bucks. And you'll receive a live and 24-hour replay. And for VIP, they're in $97, which includes live plus a 12-month replay, plus value-packed bonuses such as live coaching and panel discussions during the intermissions, access to additional Facebook and TikTok ads training within your portal, and lots more. Yes, we are literally so excited for Wedding Photography Summit and cannot wait to see you there. Oh my gosh. To learn more and grab your tickets, head to weddingphotographysummit.com. Oh man, I love this so much. I remember when I learned this in your course, but you, you gave terms to like what I had accidentally already done and it was (laughs) mind blowing. So just for everybody. And I like that you, 
you mentioned this, Jeremy, but just to like bring it home with an example, me and Evie, obviously, and a lot of you listeners started a photography business or a creative entrepreneur service-based business. A lot of service-based people are listening to this. Um, and then like our, uh, freedom business was the heart university where when he said like, we're not trading time for money, that's where like, Oh, okay. Now we're doing courses. We're doing, you know, this podcast, we're launching digital products, things like that. Um, and then from that, obviously, like Jeremy just said, like a freedom business typically gives you a lot more money to then invest into, uh, Jeremy, what did you say? Like legacy business? Yeah. Yeah. It's a scale business that, um, you, you start to disentangle, the the amount of time you're spending with the amount of money you're making. So yeah, I would call it like Heart University is your, your scale business. Mm-hmm. And then um Oh, yeah, so did then, I say freedom business? I yeah. messed it up. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I know. These are it, it does give freedom though. Uh, like and that's that's confusing. But yeah, but it tends to scale and gives much more time freedom for sure. Yeah. But when I call a freedom business often what gets gets get people free from employment. That makes um, sense. And that's the the beginning of it where you have a service that you can, you know, pull the money out of. Yeah. And then like you said, then that starts to produce some cash for the legacy business. Got you. Okay. So it goes freedom business to scale business to legacy business. Um, right. So yeah, I just wanted to give people like kind of like that, that breakdown um, of, of how, how that can look visually. And I love that you mentioned just how to incorporate even your kids into that. Um, but that kind of almost leads me into the next question, which like, how have you set boundaries between like both work and then family life, especially with incorporating your family into your business intentionally? Because I think yeah. so many of our listeners struggle with like work seeping into their family life. And maybe that's more so because their work is is right now very separate from their family life. But I guess the question is, how do you maintain that balance, especially when your family is so incorporated in your business? Yeah, it is tricky. And that, that's why that, that's why I think that there's really two different paradigms. One, one paradigm is that work and family are super separate and you create strong firewalls between them in order to create the right balance. And that you, um, because when you work, it isn't benefiting your family relationships at all. It actually just always takes away. And so when you're living that kind of a lifestyle, I do think that balance is the right the right way to think about it. And so, but I would say that a totally different paradigm for how to think about this is, is integrating them. And so in other words, like when I go to work and my daughter is helping me work, um, my, I, I'm not that interested in, in the boundaries, um, between those relations, because the, the more intense I get about work, the deeper I get in, into my relationship with my daughter. Um, and so that changes the dynamic. Um, now I think it's important to understand that, um, the West, we, we have basically a, um, we have a, what I, I think of as a, as an employee and a lot of people starting businesses still have this, this perspective, an employee perspective on work. And that is if you're an employee and you were to say, Hey, um, you know, I'm going to be less productive so I can, I can work and integrate with my family. There's, I don't know any employer that's going to be like, Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Go for it. You know, <laughs> like we expect that, that that's, that's called stealing, you know, in our culture. Like when you are on the clock, and your children are around and they're creating a one or 2% productivity hit, that's stealing, you know, mm-hmm. in our, in our, in our way of thinking, like you're on the clock. I own you for that hour, that hour I'm paying you, you need to work 100% on what I tell you to work on, you know? Um, and so we all assume that's how work 
works. And that's, that's actually weird to me, but I understand it. I mean, you're in a relationship with an employer. If they tell you, I expect you to work, you know, hundred percent on this thing, then, then you should. And, you know, that's the agreement you made with them. And, and therefore balance is the right way to think about it. Like you need to say, Hey, whoa, I gave you your hours. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not checking my email. You know, I'm not working more when I get home. And that's when balance becomes critical. Mm-hmm. However, if you own the business, it, all bets are off. You can design it however you want. You own the business. It, 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 you can design it to bless your family. And you can decide, look, I, I want to be all in on fatherhood right now. And it, you know, for us, the way that that probably looks the most dramatic is that we, you know, we keep a very, um, you know, a very regular Sabbath. And so on Friday night, you know, when we light the candle and we, and I, I say over my family, like, Hey guys, um, whatever we've done, like we are done working, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, one of the things I, t- I tell them is, you know, who works seven days a week? And they, they say slaves. That's right. Slaves work seven days a week and we're not slaves. We're sons and daughters. Oof. And so we work six days a week. And for one day a week, we totally rest. And mm-hmm. we've trained our family that you know, we go hundred percent. We crash into it. Like, we work really hard. And then on Friday, when that candle's lit, it's over. Like wherever, and this is part of just the way that we let the gospel and what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. Like we form our hearts and sort of at the, the sort of the heartbeat of our family is that story that, that the hardest work that we, we, we ever had to do has already been accomplished for us. And so even though I have, you know, a hundred emails left in my inbox, it's finished. Like I can rest, my soul can fully rest in what Jesus has already done for me. And, and so we, we try to enter into that in a very, you know, practical way, you know, with a feast. And then, you know, that meal is totally timeless And that, like, we don't, I mean, we don't have anywhere to go on Friday night. Like we, we just, and you know, my parents are there. We, we have to have other extended family members there. You know, my kids are there. Um, and we're just enjoying being a family and, um, doing whatever we want, you know, and then that bleeds into all day Saturday. And, uh, and so, so, so that's a very protected time. And that's a time where I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to think about work. I don't want to think about productivity at all. I'm all relational, uh, and I'm resting and I'm trying to completely recharge. And it took me months and years to actually figure out how to design a Sabbath day that I loved and that totally filled my tank up so that I would start the next week, you know, with more energy than I left last week. And this is a huge journey for my wife. We're actually doing a whole series of podcasts on the family teams podcast right now um, of seven episodes of just how do you do this with little kids? Because that's our, one of our biggest questions. People are like, Oh my gosh, you can't rest with little kids. Can you? (laughs) Um, And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's especially hard for on moms um, who, who, you know, who are very tied in potentially to, you know, how their kids are doing on a Sabbath. So, um, so anyway, that, that, that's a giant rabbit hole about how to, how to do that. And that's also just a season of life. A lot of times we tend to think, oh, well, you know, my kids will always be little and there's always going to be this. No, that's very short. You know, you spend, you're going to spend and like, we're in now this season where our kids are, you know, mostly adults and, and, you know, we've got another 30, 40 years ahead of us, you know, probably. So, um, you know, there's, there's, but that's a really important season to learn how to rest. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this. I'm curious for you as a listener who's maybe, you know, listening to this whole episode, feeling this 
like ignition in their heart. Like something has just burst to life, some passion. They're excited about this concept. They're excited about the idea of redefining family and incorporating their family into their businesses. What would you give as like a practical, like first step to the listener who's ready to walk away from this episode and kind of take this and implement it. Is there one thing that you would recommend them doing first or, or a couple of things to just keep in mind as they're starting this journey on their own? Yeah. So I think that the most powerful tool is to have a weekly uh, family meeting, you know, and this is often with your little kids, with you and your spouse. And then every, every week, um, and if you're a single, you know, a single mom or a single dad, you can, you can, you know, set aside some time to do this every week and what you want to start to do is is do if you own your own business do what i like to just call an experiment and in integration so so you just want to start with something really small like you want to look at your whole week look at like okay looking at monday through friday looking at all the tasks i have to do or what what is the block of time that would be most susceptible to integration okay if you have let's say you have 3 kids um, and the oldest is 7 and so you look at this block of time, and you're like, okay, well, let's see here. I do meetings and I'm driving around from like two to five, oftentimes on, on Wednesdays. Okay. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to run an experiment. I'm going to bring a child with me during that three or four hour block and see what happens, you know, and then think through the details, you know, and that, the reason why I'm big into having a meeting is you want to be really honest about what, what happened during that experiment. You want to like, look at, look and see, okay. Okay, that didn't work great. Uh, you know, I, if they would have, but if they would have had something to do, that would have worked great. You know, or if I would have had a good question, questions I could have asked them while we were in the car, I think that would have been really helpful. You know, and so we just kept running experiment after experiment. We were very, you know, um, I think persistent in every week, and so eventually we came up with so many integration ways that that were were really great for our productivity. I mean, um, sometimes it required us to train our kids, like how to like very simple thing, like how to interrupt you, you know? Mm. And so like, I would just train my children, Hey, you know, if you're in the middle of something and I'm in a meeting, um, you know, you can just come over and put your hand on my, on my arm. Do not interrupt me when I'm talking to somebody. Um, and I will acknowledge you, you know, usually I put my hand on their hand so they know, I, I know they're there. And then when I've, you know, finished my sentence or that person's finished their thought, I'll turn and say, Hey, what can I, you know, what do you, what do you need? Um, that simple little tactic from having somebody burst into your office, mama, 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 you know, or da, da, da. it's like, <laughs> it's like night and day in terms of integration. And so, yeah. so many people are just uncomfortable with, with base, basic, small little, uh, training. And I, and I would literally train them like, okay, okay. Like go outside, like come to, you know, get to some place where, you're really frightening. Then, then I want you to come in and this is exactly how I want you to interrupt me. And then I would reward them and like, Hey, that's awesome. Like if you can do that, you know, in all day, because I want to spend time with them, but I, they have to learn. I want my children to learn how to be in an adult world. Um, and we, we just have this paradigm. This is another one of those things that you just don't see in a lot of other cultures. Um, and that is that we, we have this world where there's a kid world and an adult world. And like, if we ever say something like, hey, bring your kids to this meal or whatever, there's an assumption that Western parents have that, you know, kids are kids and there's going to be chaos and you're inviting all of that chaos when you say mm-hmm. kids are invited. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That's a very strange idea. It's a very new idea. It's sort of, you know, again, based on this idea that kids don't belong in an adult world. And we just, we don't have that perspective in our family. We want our children to be able to, my, my kids, they, they have really deep friendships with my friends. I mean, mm-hmm. they are very comfortable in adult worlds, but because kids are socialized in, in kid-only environments, um, and then and then we just, we don't believe in training children. And so there's so many of those things that just stacked up and created these realms that are so different. And I think that this feels impossible to people. Whereas mm-hmm. like I would bring, you know, I would, you know, it was very easy for me to bring a seven or eight year old with me, you know, all day long and be able to interact with them in between projects um, and for them to be working quietly on, on what they're working on. And then for us to share lots of time in the car, lots of deep conversations. I mean, I, I brought my kids into board meetings all the time, you know, and just said, hey, sit here, listen, take notes, you know, think about what's going on. We're going to debrief. I'm going to ask you questions afterwards. I mean, they, they are very much aware of what's going on and they're not creating chaos. Um, you know, if there's private conversations that need to be had, I could easily just say, hey, I need you to step out for a minute, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I can be very comfortable with the fact that they're going to be able to take care of themselves. And then oftentimes we started bringing, you know, when the kids were really little, like if I had one, if I had a child who was four and really couldn't, you know, function on their own, but I had another child who was nine, I would just bring them both to work. And I actually found it was easier oftentimes to bring two of my kids to work. Um, and then, you know, I would train the nine-year-old how to, you know, how to oversee the four-year-old and what they're working on and, you know, how to keep them busy. And, and then, you know, again, like they're getting to experience being a brother or sister, which I think is beautiful. I got mm-hmm. to experience being a father, which I love. Um, and again, I had to wake up those parts of my heart to, um, to be able to do that. And then, you know, get to be with my son or my daughter that, that those were all things that we valued at a super high level. And so we were willing to go through these, these experiments and integration mm-hmm. to figure out how to make that work. Um, but I think that's, that's the one thing I would say to people is you have to, you have to be willing to try things and then you have to be honest about the, the outcome. You know, if it really hurt your productivity, if it distracted a client, you know, it's okay to say that's, you know, that's not okay. But then you have to have the time in the meeting to say, wait a minute, can can we fix that? Maybe a little training, you know, maybe if we brought them something to do, maybe it's just at the right time, you know, maybe that, that wasn't the best but, but again, if you do that repeatedly, you'll find that there's actually lots of places that you can integrate your children, um, you know, once you dial in some of those details. Wow. So good. I, you were like, I gave them one, here's one thing. I'm like, no, you've given us so much yes. in this entire conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, well, I'm like, my mind is reeling. And so I know our <laughs> listeners' mind is reeling as well. Um, to end out the episode, we like to do two kind of like, I don't know if it's like a fast paced what's that called? Rapid uh, fire. Rapid. Thank you. Evie. I got you. <laughs> rapid fire questions. Um, although the first one maybe is not as rapid fire cause it's kind of deep, but, uh, we like to ask these two questions to end out the episode to every guest. Um, the first one is what is the biggest lesson you have learned in business? And then the second one is what is your favorite book that you've read recently? I would say, I mean, this is maybe just talking about business overall. The probably the biggest lesson I learned was that businesses, um, need to have a uh, an operating system. I don't know if you guys have heard, you know, there, this is kind of like something that, that's just emerged in the last like 10 years, got became kind of real popular in the last two or three years. And that is that everyone was sort of reinventing the wheel in business mm-hmm. in terms of like, how do we do meetings? How do we, you know, how do we set goals? When do, when do we do offsites? You know, how do we balance the, the difference between working in a business and working on the business? How do we set up vision and values? You know, how do we, you know, what, what are the targets? You know, what are the metrics that, that we should be tracking. I mean, 
there, there's about 20 of those kinds of questions that every business absolutely needs to solve, like, you know, um, in order for them to, to really track um, what's going on and then to, and then to properly balance, you know, each of those things. And, and so that has been redefined recently as an operating system, which I think that that's just a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. And that, don't try to reinvent the wheel, like find an operating system and install it on your business. So probably the most popular one right now is the EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system. And there's a guy named Gina Wickman who wrote a book called Traction. Um, I just seen this transform so many businesses. Basically, he did a very simple thing and that he's, he just took the top like 50 to 100 best business books out there. And instead of just saying, hey, hey you, you should all read these 50 or 100 books and then, <laughs> then invent ways to apply all of this. <laughs> like that's kind of what I felt like I had to do as a business owner. And it was that is really asking a lot of every yeah. single <laughs> So you're basically like, no, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll read the 50 or 100 business books. I'll boil it down into here are like, you know, 15 to 20, you know, repeatable practices that basically implement everything they're saying. Mm-hmm. And then here's how you install that in your business. And we're going to call that an operating system. So anyway, I love that idea that, that businesses need an operating system and that we shouldn't be all out there trying to reinvent the wheel from scratch. So good. I love that. Yeah, we we use the the EOS methods in our business and we've talked about it on the podcast before. So listeners, if you have not already read Traction, go do it. Go do it. <laughs> Game changer. Okay. And then Jeremy, I don't know if you would consider this as like a favorite book you've read it would be Traction, but do you have any other answer to that question? Uh, just a, my favorite book of all time. Yeah. Or that you've read uh, yeah. either. Either, uh, yeah. All time that you've read recently, just any book recommendation that you would like to give to a listener today. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I this is a dense book. I'm just about done with it. This uh, Carl Truman wrote the the book, the um, the rise and the triumph of the uh, the individual self. A lot of what I've been talking about in this in this podcast, um, he kind of gets into the philosophy of mm-hmm. of, of what that is. Um, and you know, I've I've seen this and understand that this is what's happened, um, but I I've never read a book that actually tried to get into you know, there, there's this famous quote, like basically we, we all, um, think the thoughts of dead philosophers <laughs> and I don't think we'd realize that we do. Um, I think that that, that is true. Um, you, we, you think you, you've, the way that that works is that you actually read, uh, philosophers that most of us have never read philosophy or even care to read philosophy. Um, we don't realize that what, what happens is we all live downstream of those thoughts. And so, there are people that are basically saying, here's a, here's a new way to think, you know, whether it's Freud or Marx or, you know, um, Sartre or, you know, there's, there's all these influential, influential philosophers the last you know, couple hundred years. And, you know, this gets in the universities, they, it starts to get, you know, collated into, um, how, how many of us are, how, how academics think. And then it just, we're, we all live sort of downstream from that. And so what, what Truman's trying to do in this book is just saying, Hey guys, we're all, you know, we are, we are so far downstream into this idea that the individual is, is so paramount. And we, we really believe that the ultimate answer to our, our problems, uh, is that we just need more individual freedom. And that these, and again, like these things like family just gets in the way mm-hmm. of that. And we don't realize that, that we've all drunk that philosophy and the music that we're listening to and the movies we watch, uh, and the shows we're, you know, binge watching are just saturated in that philosophy, those philosophies. And man, it's important just to like expose yourself to, you know, kind of, kind of go, go down the rabbit hole and say, okay, what, where did this come from? You know, so that you can free yourself from, 
thinking the thoughts of dead philosophers, you know, and you can start to think about things more, you know, kind of like, do I really want to believe this? Do I really Mm -hmm. think that these ideas are better, you know, Mm -hmm. than the ideas that, 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 that they subverted. Um, And so a lot of my life has been, you know, kind of summed up in this verse in Jeremiah, where basically he says, you know, um, stand at the crossroads and look and look for the ancient paths and there you will find rest for your souls. And so much of what I've really learned is that, you know, uh, there is so much wisdom in ancient paths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We think that the latest idea is so much better uh, and that we need to free ourselves from the shackles of these, the the, the past, the ancient ways. Mm -hmm. And I think we've lost and left behind so many beautiful ideas uh, in our pursuit of some other path. And it's just... Again, look at the results. It's not really pretty. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that the ancient paths are have some things to teach us, and so I want to restore those. But that's a book that's really, I think, kind of exposing that reality. I love that. I just added yeah. that to my list, and I know Lindsay did right. too. <laughs> Oh, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time here today. I feel like we could have talked to you for hours on end, and you just gave literally minute after minute was packed with wisdom and just mindset goodness that I think each and every one of us are going to be, you know, processing for a while walking away from this episode. And I'm sure some listeners are going to be longing for more, ready to hear more, learn more, to step into this new, you know, approach to family and to business. So where can people learn more from you, find you, website, social, your own podcast, courses, anything that you have to give? Yeah. So a lot of that you can, you guys can find at familyteams.com and we have a podcast there. We have a live event we're doing in a couple of weeks in Tampa with our friends, the Beth keys. Um, we, we do, uh, there's lots of ways that you can, you know, follow us on the various social channels. And so that's, I'm constantly on there talking about these things, you know, and, um, you know, on the podcast and in various arenas and there's courses and, um, like Lindsay is, is doing, we have this thing called family Inc, you know, for people that are trying to do it, trying to transition into, you know, growing a freedom scale or legacy business as a family team. Uh, and so I love getting to, to coach uh, folks in, in that environment. And so um, I'm on there. And then personally, yeah, you can follow me on, on all the social stuff on Twitter, on, you know, Instagram. I, I've got a personal podcast where I kind of, you know, just, you know, where it's kind of the, the front edge of my thoughts. I'm just like working out a lot of this stuff with with other thinkers and, and people in our community. And so you guys can jump on there if you want to. And then I also have a book called Family Revision um, that kind of walks through this, you know, really from a scriptural perspective. Um, and then my uh, family team's partner, Jeff Bethke, he has a great book called Take Back Your Family. And he really goes into not, you know, both the sort of the, the biblical, but also he, he goes into like the industrial revolution, a lot of the statistics, mm. um, a lot of the kind of really, how do we get here? Mm-hmm. Jeff does a great job of, of articulating kind of the journey the family's taken from uh, what we used to think to what we think today. Yeah, uh, I, I read that in March and I literally texted Evie and I was like, read that! <laughs> <laughs> so good, yeah. But I can also vouch for your guys' courses. They are absolutely incredible. So, oh my gosh, Jeremy, thank you so much for being here today and for giving our listeners so much. You have been incredible. Yeah, thank you guys so much for letting me, let me be on here. It was great. <laughs> <laughs>